Hello and welcome to Voice of Change. In this podcast, we break down the big issues in climate and sustainability. While support for action is increasing, climate change is a wicked problem that is overly complicated and the way forward not always clear. This podcast aims to give voice to those who can lead the way. In an era of distrust, scepticism and fake news, I bring you the experts and present you information, facts and interesting ideas with the odd dash of politics to spice it all up. This is Voice of Change and I am your host, Sophie Taylor-Price. Before we get stuck into today's episode, a quick call to action. The rural and regional communities affected by fire need your help. The summer season is the time when most small businesses generate the income they need to survive the year. Many of these small businesses are now in the brink of insolvency, if not bust already. If we want to stem the blood flow, we need to be injecting cash into these small towns. So, plan a road trip, get out to these small towns, stay the night, fill your bellies, buy local, you can help make all the difference. Also, this weekend, I'll be in Kangaroo Valley supporting their bushfire recovery and relief. We are hosting a fundraising event to get dollars into the community. My regular listeners know how much I love wine, so that's how I'm doing my bit. I'm organising a wine lucky dip and I'm looking for 200 bottles to be donated to raise funds for the local community. Hit me up on my website or Twitter if you're in Sydney, Canberra or somewhere in between and willing to donate a few bottles or a case for this cause. Now, to the show. In last week's episode, we got personal. This week, we're taking a big step back and talking national. 2020 is looking to be the year that the tide turns. As we spoke about last week, the public sentiment has gained significant momentum. Discussions on climate action have spilled into classrooms and boardrooms, barbecues and coffee shops. They have also spilled into the streets with protesters in their thousands. But what exactly should we be protesting for? While I understand people's frustrations, I personally believe that climate action is an inherently bipartisan issue and requires support from all across the political spectrum and therefore needs to work within the system we have. While it's devastating to acknowledge, the bushfires have provided us with a burning platform. Australia's sense of urgency has escalated. Looking to capitalise on public sentiment, the People's Climate Assembly was formed. It is a coalition of climate environmental groups who bring together a broad range of political sentiments, but are ultimately working together for a common goal. Australia's declaration of an ecological and climate emergency. They are coming together in Canberra for the week commencing Sunday the 2nd of February for a week of educational and awareness activities, but the highlight will be a rally calling for the declaration of a climate emergency. The rally will be held on Tuesday 4th of February at midday to be emceed by Australia's most beloved scientist, Dr Carl. Declaration of a climate emergency is a global trend in local, state and national governments. So much so that climate emergency was the Oxford Dictionary's 2019 word of the year. The first declaration was actually here in Australia. In 2016, Darwin Council in Victoria made the declaration and is credited with starting a movement that is now supported by governments representing 800 million people worldwide. That's about one in 10 people covered. However, Australia as a whole has still not followed suit. The important question is, what do we mean by declaring a climate emergency? What if anything has changed? And if we did declare a climate emergency, what would that mean for Australia? Who better to answer these questions than the doctor himself and Peter Thompson, one of the instigators of the People's Climate Assembly, organising the rally next week? Peter is a retired educator and climate activist and responsible for helping pull this coalition together. 
Dr. Carl needs little introduction, other than that he's one of my childhood heroes and one of Australia's most trusted and adored scientists. Peter, Carl, welcome to the show. Well, that's awfully kind of you, but according to the Reader's Digest Trusted Survey, I've been gradually dropping down, and by the year 2436, I'll be off the, out of the table. <laughs> they put me up against people like Peter Jackman. What chance do I have against him? <laughs> I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, look, before we get into the crux of this, yeah. um, a fun fact, yeah. I studied geoscience at Sydney University. Oh. And occasionally we had lectures at the uh, at the physics faculty, the physics building. And you never dropped in for a cup of tea. No, I'd always walk past your office and I'd see you in there and I was too scared and intimidated oh, to go introduce myself. You would have got a free cup of coffee out of me at Ralph's. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I wanted to share that with you before we get into uh, today's episode. So I guess what we wanted to break down today is this concept of a climate emergency, mm-hmm. um, why we're calling for one and what that would actually do here in Australia. So maybe the first question we should be asking, uh, explaining, is what do we mean by a climate emergency? Um, emergency is a balance between risk and time. So if my house is going to fall down, but it'll be in 20 years or 40 years, it's not an emergency. If it's this afternoon, it is an emergency. And then that is your sort of basis for thinking about emergency. So with regard to climate change, um, it has been pretty clear since 1975, 76, when Munich Re, the world's largest insurance company, started seeing climate change, or they call it the greenhouse effect back then, and started putting it into their insurance premiums. 1989, the scientists needed a higher burden of proof, so it took them longer, and they said in 1989, climate change is real. It's happened before, but this one is, here's another one, but we caused this one. That's the difference. We caused this one, and we've been doing nothing for 31 years, and we're getting closer to what are called tipping points, so hence the name emergency. Tipping point, imagine you've got a pencil on a table and you go push, little tiny push, nothing happens. Push, 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 nothing happens. Then suddenly it's on the edge of the table just quivering and you give another push and it'll still quiver and you give it one more push and it falls off. Once it falls off, that's called the tipping point. And one of the things we learned from chaos theory is you can't really predict the exact moment of a tipping point, but you can say when it's happened and it's too late. And so there are several sort of tipping points on the cards coming at us to justify the term climate emergency. And so what are one or two examples that are sort of really making us feel that we're getting close? Uh, one thing that scares me is, um, wait for I'm going to give you a word you've probably never heard of, pteropod. <laughs> I have heard of that. Don't yeah. know what it means, but I have heard of yeah. it. Yeah, okay. So a pteropod, um, terra means flat or a pod means foot. So it's a little thing uh, a few centimetres across, uh, floats around the oceans and it's got a hard shell and the oceans have become so acid by acid, I mean, not that you walk down the beach and you put your foot in and suddenly you're left with a bleeding stump, but they've gone from pH 8.2 to 8.1 and you can look up pH mm. in chemistry and mm. Wikipedia, they've gone a little bit more acid and they've gone enough that the pteropod can't make its shell anymore. And you think, big whoop, I've never heard of a pteropod. Well, think about the concept of carbon flux. So I eat some basil out of the garden and it comes into my mouth and it leaves my body the same way it came in, through my major excretory organ, which is the mouth. Mm. 
So it goes out through a mouth, goes in the backyard, and it goes into some corn I'm growing there. So these carbon atoms go around and around, hence the term carbon flux. The pteropod is involved in the carbon flux, not one millionth of one percent. One in every 12 atoms of carbon in the biosphere goes through a pteropod. Not one in every 12 trillion, one in every 12. And so it's incredibly important in the biosphere and also it's um, 70% of the food of the lab examined, so who needs to eat fish? So there's one example of, we, of a tipping point we're getting close to. Another tipping point that scares me is the uh, permafrost. Now, if you look at the land on Earth, there's the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere, most of the land's in the northern hemisphere. Okay, let's look at the northern hemisphere. One quarter of all the land in the Northern Hemisphere is permafrost, up to one and a half kilometres deep, with several times as much carbon as in the, as in the atmosphere trapped in it. And it's bubbling out, it's melting. It, and, and, and it'll be in some ways good for some countries, such as Russia is kind of enjoying it because it means that they can do more trade through the Arctic when the ice melts. And also they'll be able to, once the land stops falling over, be able to colonise Siberia a bit better. But what it means is we're approaching a point of a positive feedback loop mm. where we start releasing huge amounts of carboniferous materials such as carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere. So there's just two of the points, tipping points that we haven't reached yet, but once we have, it'll be too late. Mm. And we're getting into that mixture of important and running out of time. Hence the word emergency. So I get that sense of urgency for action. What does declaring a climate emergency actually mean? What What's the outcome of that? Uh, the outcome depends entirely upon what happens in each of the individual parts in the world. So I have gone and been in protests against nuclear weapons and um, against the Vietnam War and against the fact that the Indigenous people of Australia weren't able to vote and weren't counted in the census and against whaling and against apartheid and for gay people being able to marry. And there's been a whole bunch of protests I've been in and in each one of those, uh, in retrospect, I've been on the right side of history. With the carbon uh, emergency... The science is so robust, I'm very confident I'm on the right side of history. And what we have to do is increase awareness. There's a deliberate disinformation campaign that Mm. was started by the big fossil fuel companies in 1989, and they've got some of the powerful media on their side. And it's nothing personal, like, for example... Last in, in August 2018, in every hospital in Australia, these huge posters, not just A4, but A0, huge ones, appeared with a woman standing sideways with a pregnant belly and no head, boo the patriarchy, and it said it has not been proven that drinking alcohol is dangerous for the unborn baby of a pregnant woman. Mm. That is 100% a lie. The exact opposite is true. Now, big alcohol wasn't specifically trying to create a generation of um, mentally retarded, uh, malformed babies. They just wanted to sell alcohol, and there was this whole market of people, pregnant women, who just would not drink, and they were just trying to convince them out of it. And so these posters <laughs> got... No, it wasn't personal. It was just business. Yeah. And so we're seeing the same thing from fossil fuel. Mm. It's just business for them. Um, and big tobacco. And we have to push against the well-funded, powerful set of lies, or in polite terms, disinformation program. 
So this is inherently also a social and political process, a political movement, social movement. Why are we making this push now, Peter, and what does that, you know, what are we hoping to achieve? Thanks, Sophie. Um, look, uh, following on from what Dr. Carl said, um, and if I could quote Michel Onfray, a great French philosopher, hedonist philosopher, but he, he called this kind of misinformation a, a defeat of the Enlightenment. And, a defeat uh, of the Enlightenment? Uh, yeah, what was this guy's name? Uh, Michel Onfray. He's a famous French philosopher, but it's a defeat. It's like moving backwards away from the when we had that explosion with, you know, around about the mid-1600s with Newton and Leibniz and the whole movement then. And uh, this dis- disinformation campaign has been spread by people largely who have no background in science, no background in maths. It's an extraordinary thing. And I think what we're seeing is an addiction to easy money, the way we saw with the tobacco industry, the way we saw with Hardy's, and the way that Carl's... Uh, described with the alcohol uh, industry, when there's this addiction to easy money, in Buddhism they call the the three poisons greed, hatred and ignorance. In the old Christian sense, it was seven seven deadly sins and three or four of those deadly sins are to do with greed, avarice and uh, some of the others are about, they're all about hanging on. And so if you see the danger really clearly though, it's I think the scene is the doing. But that sort of greed blinds you and doesn't allow you to see the danger as clearly as science is pointing out. And so the need for this political movement now is coming because the catastrophes, catastrophes that were forecast, I can remember Bob Brown talking about these 15 to 20 years ago, are now actually coming to pass. And Bob was co- talking according to the science then. And some of those predictions are actually worse now not not less. Some of them are over what was predicted then. We're getting worse, as uh, Carl just mentioned. The feedback loops are kicking in. I know with methane, that's a that's an issue there. The release of that. So we're now really um, uh, having to shake the government, who is addicted to easy coal money and easy easy fossil fossil fuel money. We're trying to shake them. And so it is a peaceful protest in Canberra, yes, but it's a presence that is assertive and saying enough is enough. To quote Goff, uh, it's time, it's time. And possibly we could also quote uh, Goff after this latest set of fires, maintain your rage, but channel your rage. Rage is a very powerful human emotion for change, but not unchanneled, and uh, if it's just rawly expressed, it can lead to nasty outcomes, and we don't want that. Uh, we don't want that. We want a creative outcome. That energy of anger can fuel massive change if it's channeled creatively, and that's why we're saying our first demand is declare a climate an ecological emergency immediately. And that is a great segue to my next question because I think we all get that um, we're, we're running out of time, there's a sense of urgency, there are some vested interests that are making it challenging. What is the actual process for declaring a climate emergency? We're asking it of our federal government. 
how does that work and what does it mean? Like what's the practicalities of it? Is it just a act of symbolism or are there pre- some practicalities to it? Or even better, are there legislative implications? Like what are we actually asking for? What does it mean? Uh, for me, i got no idea. <laughs> um, certainly I know what happened on mm. the 7th of December 1941. Mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor got bombed and suddenly the Americans went ape. And because it was just one single country isolated by ocean on both sides, you could see what happened. They immediately shut down all production of motor vehicles and turned, and they had a huge car industry, and started making weapons of war. And they were pumping out things like the B-17, this 30-tonne bomber that could carry a load of 10 tonnes, travel almost Sydney to Perth, return 460 kilometres an hour. Huge plane. They were pumping them out out of the car factories at the rate of not one a month, one an hour. Mm. and the President of the United States told the car manufacturers they had to do that and said, yeah, well, look, we'll, we'll get back to you with a plan. He said, no, by next Monday, your factories have to be shut down and you've got to start be making weapons of war. So that was how they practically did it. But is there the legislation available to do it or is it a symbolic rallying flag? I'm out of my depth on this one. Well, I, I think the, the government resisted three calls last year for within the parliament. There were three motions for a climate emergency and Morrison and his uh, government resisted that tremendously because I think they unconsciously knew that once you declare that, like once you say you admit you're an alcoholic, you've got to go to the to AA, and that's the ah. next step. And so, in admitting that uh, it says in AA, the first of the twelve steps is I acknowledged, admitted that I became powerless over my drinking. So that admission, that acknowledgement of the truth, automatically points towards action, and we can then say, look to the government and hold them accountable on that. Look, you've said this is an emergency. If this was an epidemic, a medical epidemic, you'd be sending out brochures through the post warning people not to go near outside at certain times to those shops or wherever. Um, And there is a a virus around now that could lead to, you know... The coronavirus. That's right. So what would be the action of government then? Emergency really means the same thing in in another sense. Uh, Mm. An epidemic is an emergency and... Therefore, government almost has a duty of care to start taking actions commensurate with that acknowledgement. Ah, so there is a mechanism by which the parliament can pass a motion to declare an emergency. And if this were potentially apolitical, people could cross the floor to vote for it. That's right. And Dr Carl, what we're asking asking for here is (laughs) that... uh, Prime Minister Morrison gave a conscience vote, as he did for the same-sex marriage bill. Ah, oh, is that the term, a conscience vote? A conscience vote, vote where MPs won't be uh, sanctioned or penalised for crossing the floor, uh, voting on their conscience. And as you indicated, this should be a bipartisan, should have always ah. been a bipartisan thing according to science. And so when uh, normally if someone will cross the floor, they may be... Uh, they may be afraid of being uh, not put up for pre-selection, lose their pre-selection, whatever. And so this time we're asking, no, give the people in your uh, party, political party, 
parliamentary political party, a conscience vote, a free vote. Ah, and if people refuse, if, if the political parties refuse to allow a conscience vote, then a person who does cross the floor mm. is in danger of losing pre-selection. Mm. Something like that. On the other, and, and that's a process whereby they're more likely to get in party because they've got the political power behind them of that party. But that's then right. on the other hand, they could then run as an independent, which is harder, but then they're appealing to the people in their individual electorate. That's right. Mm. That's right. Mm. Not many feel safe enough, uh, as you indicate, to run as an independent. And so they're in the the family of the party as a, as a sort of a safety thing to, to make sure they get elected, using that brand name, as we say, I suppose, you know, mm. um, to, to riding on that. So there is a lot of fear of losing that pre party pre-selection. Mm. So if we're, we're building on both of your answers to that question, declaring a cl- climate emergency does, does two things. One, it, it opens up by acknowledging, it opens up the possibility to have a distinct shift in our current political positioning mm-hmm. um, and take an appropriate response, which is appropriate to the current situation. And, and, and going back to your Pearl Harbor example, example, it's allocation of resources to where they're needed in terms of what is the response that we need to take to the current situation. Mm. Is that a... A yeah. fair summation of, right. yeah. of the two answers. But then I'll yeah, give you another analogy right. uh, yeah. example besides <laughs> Pearl Harbor, the Times Table. Yep. So most of us are pretty okay with the fact that the two times, the three times, the four times tables are mathematically correct. But imagine if you had a situation where people would say, oh, look, thank you for telling me that, Sophie, but um, I belong to the XYZ political party. I'm very happy with the <laughs> two, three, four, fives and six times tables but our party does not accept the seven times tables. And that's kind of what we're seeing with climate change. It's like saying, we do not accept that the earth is a globe. It has to be flat. We do not accept evolution. We do not accept that vaccinations work and are overwhelmingly safe. We do not accept the seven times table. It's kind of strange as somebody who, I'm just thinking on this particular issue, um, I've got nothing to say about politics. You can see how ignorant I am. After all, when I did run for politics, I failed. But I am sticking to the science. And on that, I'm fairly robust. And that you yeah. are, Dr. Carl. Yeah, well, well said, Dr. <laughs> Carl. I, I feel that uh, your war analogy is very good because in the war, we were able to immediately, very quickly, turn around the whole of society into we had rationing, we had a whole range of measures mm. that people accepted because they knew it was an emergency and it was part of defending Australia in that way, but this is defending yep. civilization yeah. as we, you know. And at no stage was there the statement, oh, Australia um, can only contribute one or two percent of the sum total of the allied armies, so therefore we'll contribute nothing. <laughs> you go right ahead and take care of it for us. We'll do nothing, but we'll do it slowly <laughs> and masterfully. In fact, it turned out that there were many close calls and the Second World War could have gone either way at many cases. Um, we were lucky in that. Look, and I think our analogies are getting away with us. Okay, good, good point, Dr. Sophie. Thank you. <laughs> Look, hypothetically, um, mm-hmm. we, we get to the point where a climate emergency has been declared and we now see the appropriate responses in terms of allocation of resources and policies put in place to um, deal with the um, urgency of the situation. From each of your perspectives, what would be the three things that you would see as being different? 
Could you just put that another way? Okay, so say we succeed at getting a climate emergency Mm. declared um, and we allocate resources appropriately. What Mm. needs to change about Australia's response to our changing climate? What would would be two or three things that you'd like to see significantly changed? Um, That's very straightforward. There's only two. The first one is having recognised that climate change, global warming is real and it's caused by overwhelmingly carbon dioxide. The first one is we stop putting any more carbon dioxide in the air as quickly as possible and that's both directly by, for example, burning coal to make electricity and indirectly with regarding to buying products made overseas with our coal that we sold them that we then buy back again. So number one, we stop putting carbon dioxide in the air. Number two, we pull the carbon dioxide out and we bring it down to about 350 parts per million and that way we've got a safe buffer. Now, you might think that's impossible. Um, If you read the Scientific American, January 2019, pages 52 to 59, it deals with half a dozen different ways of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, ranging from fully biological like planting trees, to fully military-industrial. And on that side, Climeworks, a company in Switzerland, uh, since 2017 has been building these machines. And if we had 25 million of these machines, we could pull back one year's worth of carbon dioxide made by humans out of the atmosphere. And you're thinking, where would we put it? The answer is obvious. Back in the ground where we should never have taken it from in the first place. And how many machines? 25 million. Isn't that too many? That's less than one-third the number of new cars we make each year. Mm. If we decided that for four months we would not buy a new car, as the Americans did during the entirety of the Second World War, no new cars, we could pull back one year's worth of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Very straightforward. Number one, stop putting more carbon dioxide in. Number two, start pulling it back. And That's to the be big clear, picture, and then you work on the small details after that. Mm-hmm. But you've got to get the big picture first. And to be clear, yeah. when, when you say we need both, we can't just rely on the technological solution of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. We also have to stop emitting, correct? We have to do that. We have to stop emitting, number one, right now. Um, so we've got the situation where both political parties in Australia are saying, oh, yeah, we're right on board with this whole climate change thing, whatever you call it. But by the way, we are supporting new, more coal mines uh, and we're exporting uh, coal and natural gas. Is that related to global warming? Of course it is, right? So they're both um, lying like a pig in its own feces, to put it mildly. And look, I might do a quick plug for my episode from last week. I spoke oh, let's to plug you. <laughs> spoke to a researcher over um, from uh, Sweden, and we spoke about what are the actions that individuals can take around reducing their their carbon impact, and that is drive less, fly less, eat less meat. Well. Yes, um, we can do stuff at all levels. And by the way, with regard to that article from Scientific American, there's the in the biological side. If if we were to plant a trillion trees, okay, there's three trillion trees on Earth, and we have chopped down enough trees to leave room for planting another trees back where they used to be, another trillion. If we plant a trillion trees over their life, they will pull out ten years worth of carbon, human-emitted carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So we could start right now, plant all you want. So in my case, what I'm doing is um, working out how to recycle my shower, dishwasher, washing machine um, water so I can then get a second go at it. So you've got to filter it and Mm. then full of chemicals and then use that to plant more greenery around my house. 
And in fact, we wouldn't have a water crisis if we could have two goes at the water. It's so wasteful. You throw away all this water, about 100 litres per person per day, and you just run it through a recycling thing, and then you can use it again. But you, you, you flagged a question that I've been sitting on for the last few weeks, and now I've got you cornered, I can ask you. Lay it on me. Corner me. <laughs> yes. So with planting trees, mm-hmm. what has been the impact of the bushfires in terms of how trees are used as a carbon offset? Uh, Australia has done very messy things legally. With you. It's, it's kind of like saying, Mum, I don't have to brush my teeth tonight, says the eight-year-old kid, because I brushed my teeth when I was six really well, and so I don't have to brush my teeth anymore for a couple of years. Um, what, does he, what should Australia do with regard to planting trees? Plant them as quickly and as possible... If, I don't fully understand the question. Say it again. So so we use planting trees to offset emissions, yep. but all these plantations have gone up in smoke due to the bushfires, so they're no longer offsetting right. for what they were for the purpose that they were originally planted for. So how do we calculate all of that? And is planting trees a reliable way of offsetting? It is, but it's complicated, as everything is in the world. So with regard to the bushfires in Australia, they're due overwhelmingly to two major factors. One is global warming, which has made things hotter and drier. But the other one is just as important almost. It's it's up there. The trees have evolved Mm. over tens of thousands of years. They have evolved in response to being managed by fire, by the Indigenous people. And that was the case for tens of thousands of years until 200 years ago, when suddenly it stopped. So these trees, which had evolved to be managed by fire, suddenly were no longer being managed by the appropriate method that would mean that we wouldn't have dangerous fires. And the second thing was, of course, the global warming, which made everything Mm. hotter and worse. So uh, with regard to how much carbon has been emitted by the bushfires, Well, consider how much uh, carbon Australia is allowed, in inverted commas, to emit under the Paris Protocols, and there's some dodgy mathematics there, but the amount of carbon dioxide released or amount of carbon released by the bushfires is twice our entire yearly allotment And the bushfire season hasn't finished. I know. It's still going. It's going to get higher. So uh, what we've got to do is plant more trees and try to recover some of that knowledge that we lost on Mm. managing the trees with fire over a longer period of time. We went down a rabbit hole there, but I'm glad we did. We might Mm, come back. Beautiful. (laughs) I love love that. I love Carl's answer there. Um, We might come back to, to you, Peter, in terms of that question I asked before around... If we were to be successful in declaring a climate emergency, what would that look like? What are the three things, from your perspective, that well, need to change? Thanks, Sophie. I think one thing is, look, in an epidemic, government would send out that brochure to householders, and part of our problem in Australia has been um, householders haven't been properly educated according to the science. They listen to certain shock jocks. Uh, their science background is zilch and yet they're pretending to have some knowledge and some opinions. It's only uh, opinion, but it comes over as being factual. And people, Mabel and, and Dad in the little suburban house, say, oh, there's Alan again, he's right. It's... But then when they get an official brochure from the government, that we spent the government spent millions of dollars before last election on political brochures, 
often on taxpayers' money, going out to sell their wares, what they'd done, why can't they put out the most simple brochure stating the simple facts of the science, and Dr Carl could help out there formulate that because he's a very good communicator of science, uh, the facts, what you can do, what this means for you, and then what you can do, and then what we have to do as a nation and a globe mm. to do with this epidemic, this crisis, this, this um, emergency. So I see that as a very important educational thing. Now, it has to be thought out very carefully because what can mum and dad absorb to, to kind of uh, take them away from this very poor factual stuff they've been getting from the disc jocks who pretended to know all about it, knew nothing. Um, how do we re-educate or even educate for the first time these mums and dads? Our children are getting seemingly getting very good education on climate at school, hence we have the School Strike for Climate, uh, fantastically successful lately. And they've been Emperor's new clothes. They've been pointing out mm. the problem. The Emperor's naked, and you know, and and so this inconvenient truth um, is there. But how to communicate that now and bring the public with us if an emergency is declared? That's that's important. I think you've inspired me. I think I'll write a primer on carbon uh, global warming. Mm. I, I wrote my first story on global warming in 1981. Were you born mm. then? So? No, I was not. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time and been following the facts. So number one, I'll write a primer. Number two, I think I'll start a YouTube channel. Yeah. well, yeah. It's, Go to drcarl.com and check it out. It's, uh, it's not there yet, but it will be. It's one of the reasons why I started this podcast is, you know, climate change is an inherently complex issue mm. and people may be... Um, motivated to take action but don't necessarily know how to battle their way through the information and misinformation and complexities and then translate that into personal action. Well, here's something for you. Um, my brother-in-law did a thesis on this in Germany. By the way, you can get free education at a university in Germany. Yep. Mm. Yep. Oh. Yeah, for, uh, university for free and they teach yeah. it in English too. Anyway, mm. so his thesis was looking at um, knowledge about climate change in climate change deniers and acceptors. Surprisingly, they have the same amount of knowledge, which is close to zero. But the difference is that the climate change denialists have decided they're quite happy with accepting the science of every field of knowledge except climatology. Fine with histology and aeronautics and metallurgy, but just climate science, they reckon that the scientists are wrong, whereas the acceptors say scientists usually get it right most of the time, especially if they've had a decade to look back on it, and so they're just simply going along with the science. But in each case, mm. the amount of knowledge is close to zero. Mm. I might have to interview your brother at some point. That's, that's <laughs> extraordinary. But I think also, uh, Sophie, probably a second point is that if, uh, if Parliament declares this, then that assumes the members then uh, are pushing the government of uh, their own party for more action within once that's declared, and hopefully that'll be the case. Um, and um, wow. I think a, th a third thing mm -hmm. uh, I'm struggling to find, but I think uh, it just uh, look at it, we're a part of the globe, and I think our if Australia declares it has a, a, a reaction around the globe, our fires have had a massive reaction around the globe. And if Australia declared, I think it sets off China has a second look, India has a second look, everyone's having a second look as to what they're doing. Um, and so it has, we affect each other, each country affects each other like that. So it can set off a bit of a chain reaction for the good.
I'd hope. So what I'm hearing there, both your points are essentially about legitimacy, legitimacy of the science and bedding that down mm. and putting to bed any alternative facts, mm. and then legitimacy of, of global climate negotiations as well and Australia's mm. role in that. Mm. Well, mm. maybe politics is part of it. I ran for politics in 2007 and failed enormously <laughs> on a climate change ticket. Yep. But um, I remember reading the words of Chairman Mao, mm. which in 1967 were, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, which it does in many parts of the world, and as a result you end up with lots of dead people and misery and dictatorship and... I prefer the other version where political power grows out of the parliament. Mm. And I'm also guided here by, analogy number three, the godfather. Nothing <laughs> okay, personal. I'm looking forward to this analogy. Yeah, nothing personal, it's just business. Yeah. If your only choices in voting are that you have to vote for somebody who does not want to bring carbon emissions to zero, your vote is wasted. So nothing personal, just boot them out of parliament peacefully. Peacefully, mm. just vote for somebody else. Uh, don't vote for them. Yep. So that's it, nothing personal. That was just business. You yeah. just want the world to be better for your children and their children. Yeah, but we are, you know, two and a bit years away from an, an election. So uh, in terms of the urgency of action, it needs to happen now. So voting is off the cards for a little bit yet. Um, mm, but on the other hand, if there's a big movement, you can do something about it. So in America, when we had the quarter of a million people in November in, in 1969 uh, walk around the White House, even though it was a tiny percentage of the American population, it was enough to legitimise the mm. anti-Vietnam War thing. And only a few years later, we pulled out. So you've got to start somewhere. Oh, look, and I have complete hope that 2020 is going to... 2020 is going to be the year where we get that transition. I, I just feel like that the movement is happening and we're going to have some wins this year. Well, I think if, look, if, if you look at the Aboriginal tent embassy that when I was at ANU in 1972, I was studying arts and law, and three... Um, I'm feeling very young today. <laughs> three, young, young, uh, ma- three men from Redfern came down and planted a beach umbrella in front of the old Parliament House and said we're here to um, to assert Aboriginal voice and and, ju- and Aboriginal justice, land rights. That year it started to move because it was emblematic. Now when Greta took Friday off school and went and, and sat in front of the Swedish Parliament with a little placard, School Strike for Climate, it set off a world movement. So I think emblems mean a lot for humans and the fact that Part of our People's Climate Assembly is saying, look, you've got your assemblies in the parliament. This is a people's assembly outside the parliament who wants to follow the science, is incredibly concerned about these fire, late fire catastrophes. Shocking, unparalleled. Uh, we, ha- we can't find a fire in human history as big as this. Dr Carl might refute me there, but I hear that one in Siberia that was supposed to be the biggest was only half the size. This is a massive wow. thing. And uh, it's, it's massive, and I think we're asserting our, our rights and our intelligence and our love of the science in front of the other assembly, and we're saying we're the people's assembly. This is an emblematic statement for the rest of Australia and the rest of the world. People must step forward and say enough is enough. We're sick of these vested interests governing our lives and destroying the planet, destroying all these... Uh, amazing marsupials that we have, that we've got. We're, we're, we're minus a billion over, well over a billion of them now because of these fires. We're sick of that. Enough is enough. 
Now's the time for change. And furthermore, don't um, be upset by the shock jocks saying that you're being a hypocrite in getting to Canberra by burning fossil fuel. Take the example of the abolitionists in the 1800s in the United States and the United Kingdom. And they wanted to end slavery. And they were accused of being hypocrites because, wait for it, they wore clothing made by slaves, which was true. They wore clothing made by slaves, but they didn't want to go naked. They wanted to change the system so they could buy clothing that was not made by slaves. And so they had to use the system to change it. And so the people who invented the aeroplane got to their factory by riding on a bicycle. So in the same way, we're going to have to use carbon fuels to get to the, foss- to the uh, protest in Canberra, but we want to change the system so that in the future we don't have to use carbon fuels. And this is the point where I get to say, except for me, because I have a zero emissions vehicle, so I will be getting there. Wonderful. Zero Wonderful. emissions. Ah. Wonderful. <laughs> but I get your message yeah. and it's an important one. And some people in our group say, well, we've got to change the whole system. Uh, our system stinks, the capitalist system. And that... That's very, uh, arguably very true, I think. But the immediate thing is the fire, as Greta says, the house the ha- house is on fire. immediate thing is to run and get those buckets and put the fire out, and then we might, we'll have to look at the system that was behind this. But if the house is on fire, as Dr. Carl would say, the cause and effect, you've just got to get that cause out to, to get, or get the effect out, and then go to the cause later, you know, whatever that may be, mm. and... And there is a lot of doubt about our capitalist system, the greed that it produces, the way it, it tends to, you know, misuse the planet. It's abusive of First Nations peoples. It's just had that history, you know, colonisation and all kinds of problems with the system. Yes, but the house is on fire. That's 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 the result of that. Let's get that out first. So mm. we're saying that. So if we, if we go back to climate emergency... Um, change of tack slightly, uh, I'm a bit torn about the language and the messaging. On one hand, we hear that we're running out of time and we're going over a cliff and getting to that point of no return, and it's not a catastrophic crisis, it's an existential crisis, but that type of messaging can also be quite paralysing. Um, how do we communicate that sense of urgency and the scale of the challenge without knocking people out with a sense of hopelessness? And how do you... Reconcile that, Carl. Okay, um, message of hope number one. Um, If we followed the lead of the Americans and the Allied countries at the beginning of World War II, we could go carbon-free for electricity within 10 years. For transport, steel and concrete, which is 8%, we could do that in 15 years. We don't have to use calcium carbonate to make concrete. We can make a geo, use a geopolymer. Um, we can go carbon-free for agriculture and livestock within 20 to 40 years because that's got DNA and it'll fight us. It. So mm. number one, not only can we stop pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, we can start pulling it back. That's number one. Number two, second message of hope, the people today, the Taze generation, are the smartest humans ever to have lived on Earth. It's called the Flynn Effect. And we know this because the Americans started measuring the IQ of everybody who went into their military in 1932 under hard military conditions with angry people stomping around with bald heads and big boots. None of this, please, miss, can I go to the bathroom to look up to the answer on my iPhone? And we've seen that the IQ is rising 
by nine IQ points every generation. Wow. We don't know why, but we know that it has and is. So number two, it's the smartest generation ever. Number three, we are living in the most peaceful time ever in the history of the human race. So uh, read the book Factfulness by Hans Rosling and The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker. Now you might think, but surely the Second World War was on on a percentage basis the most bloody war ever in the history of the human race. No. So if you go back to the year 755 AD, in that year, the Chinese emperor, to put down a revolt by An Lushan, he killed one in every six humans on earth. Mm. One in every three people in China. Whereas Genghis Khan, to build the largest land empire ever known in the history of the human race, killed one in every 11, one in every nine people, one in every nine people. And as a result, 8% of the population of Asia and me have uh, Genghis Khan DNA. So one in uh, six for Anne Lushan, one in nine for Genghis Khan, Second World War, one in 44. Still a terrible number, but we're heading in the right direction. And if you look at the small stuff like murders in Europe and in America and in Australia and slavery and judicial torture, there's only one country left in the whole world where it is legal under the laws of that country to torture somebody, get a confession, then convict them. Under all those measures, we're getting better. So um, there's three messages of hope. We can fix global warming. This is the smartest generation ever. You are living in the most peaceful time ever in the history of the human race. Beautifully said, Carl, and I'd like to add to that something Sophie and I talked about yesterday and just on, on a personal level, like people are paralysed and therefore depressed and powerlessness can lead to sort of a stasis, a kind of a, uh, a paralysis and depression and a lot of people in our society now, particularly those intelligent young people you refer to, are, are stewing underneath and so uh, it's... To my mind, if you can come, if you come to Canberra and be part of the People's Climate Assembly, immediately, just for instance, immediately you're moving, you're doing something. Depression tends to dissolve, and you suddenly start feeling empowered. And even if you put solar panels on your roof, suddenly you're more, you're feeling a little bit empowered. Whatever you do, go to a, a, a low uh, emitting car, you, you suddenly feel more empowered. So people, instead of being paralysed. And I think on that brochure that you uh, alluded to, you might write the book, th- the, the, the book, primer the little, on, the little primer, yeah, the primer things on. you can do immediately. Mm. Uh, I was talking to Dr. Leslie Hughes the other week, and she said just keep it really simple because householders need to start really simply. Empowerment builds, empowerment mm. builds, and so I'm about that personal empowerment. Um, you know, for everyone, for everyone, bringing people into whatever it takes just to get them moving, and depression will start to dissolve about this. I'm liking it. I'm loving it. And um, I, I always love to finish my episodes on a message of hope and optimism. Mm. So I think that's probably the natural wrap-up for this conversation. Uh, thank you so much, both of you, for mm. joining me in studio today. And I'm super excited about rallying with you both next Tuesday in Canberra. Well, I'll be just sticking to the hard science. I'll let other people do the politics. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Carl. Thanks so much, Sophie. Thanks, Sophie. Dr. Thanks Carl. again. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks again, and bye for now, guys. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Voice of Change. A reminder that the views of everyone on this show are their own and not necessarily representative of the organisations they work for. 
As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. And if you have any suggestions about the show, please feel free to reach out to me on my website, sophietaylorprice.com, or on Instagram or Twitter. I really look forward to breaking down the big issues with you again next week. Until then, bye for now and see you on the flip side.